Chapter 5 of The Philosophy of Immanuel Kant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada. The Philosophy of Immanuel Kant by Alexander Delap Lindsay. Chapter 5. The Antinomies and Criticism of the Proofs of the Existence of God So far we have been considering the positive side of Kant's argument, his attempt to confirm the validity of the principles of science. We must now notice the negative side, his attempt to limit the application of these principles and his denial of the possibility of knowledge in certain spheres. We saw that Kant, in his Prolegomena, summed up the argument of the three chief divisions of the critique as an answer to the questions, how is mathematic possible, how is pure science of nature possible, and how is metaphysics possible. He qualified the last question by adding, as a natural disposition of the mind. The argument of the dialectic is that metaphysics, in the sense of inquiry into objects which transcends the bounds of experience, is not possible as a science, but that metaphysical questions arise naturally from the nature of human reason. They cannot be answered. All we can do is to see why we cannot answer them. Kant thought of knowledge as a process of extending the bounds of perception, of piecing together the fragmentary glimpses we get of the world, stretching them out in spatial and temporal determinations that go beyond what we have actually experienced, connecting and linking up the events which we perceive discontinuously. As science extends, the range of our knowledge widens, but the process of extension never reaches its completion. There are always more facts to be discovered and explained. Science, therefore, can never rest content with its achievements, but must always demand that the investigation of conditions should be pushed further back and on. From this sense of the incompleteness of all actual knowledge and of all there is that might be but is not known, arises what Kant calls an ideal of reason, a demand that, in all investigation into the conditioned, we should go on till we come to the totality of conditions. This ideal he holds to be serviceable and necessary. It has, however, a natural tendency to pass from an ideal to an idea, and in so doing it gives rise to the contradictions with which the dialectic is concerned. If all our investigation is governed by the thought that it must go on until it reaches completion, we naturally speculate on the fulfillment of that ideal and try to form an idea of that totality of conditions, of how we should think the world if we knew it in its completeness. Herein we hypostatize the ideal or make it an idea, and we fall into contradiction, for we cannot really know the whole without knowing all its parts. 
If we give up the slow and never completed process of knowing one part after another and try to jump to the idea of the whole, we reach quite contrary results. As we apply to the conception of the whole, one or other of two assumptions implied in our investigation of the parts. Kant sharply distinguishes between the principles of the pure understanding and the ideas of reason. The former are implied in all our knowledge, and the fact that experience is not chaotic confirms them at every moment. The second are ideals which guide knowledge but are never realized. He calls them ideas of reason because it is a special task of reason to lay down rules for the proper and complete working of understanding. This task, he thinks, is exemplified in the logical nature of the syllogism, which brings into unity the judgments of the understanding. As he used the forms of judgment. As a guiding thread to discover a complete list of categories of understanding, so he uses the form of syllogism to discover a complete list of the ideas of reason. In both cases, Kant's reference to logical forms is far-fetched. Actually, the list in the dialectic seems to be influenced by a number of considerations not always consistent. There are three main divisions of the dialectic. The first Kant calls paralogisms of rational psychology. All knowing and experience imply the unity of the self, which knows. In actual experience, that unity is qualified by the nature of what it unites. But we may try to think of it apart from and independent of this. This leads to an attempt. To know the self by asking what must be its nature, if it has the unity implied in knowing, and to argue that the soul is a substance and simple, not affected by the changes in the matter which it knows, and therefore immortal. The second division arises from the fact that in knowledge we are concerned with series, a series of addings together, and a series of divisions. As of parts of space and time, a series of things arising one from the other, as in causation, and a series of things in dependence one upon the other. The ideas of reason come from the thought of these series completed, and produce what Kant calls antinomies. For if we start with the thought that what we are trying to apprehend must be a whole. We get one series of results. If, with the thought that we can only apprehend the whole by going from condition to condition indefinitely, we get another. Kant distinguishes four antinomies, each with thesis and antithesis. The thesis of the first is: the world has a beginning in time and is limited also in regard to space. The antithesis. The world has no beginning and no limits in space, but is infinite in respect both to time and space. The thesis of the second is: every compound substance in the world consists of simple parts, and nothing exists anywhere but the simple or what is composed of it. 
the antithesis is the contrary of this. The thesis of the third is causality, according to the laws of nature, is not the only causality from which all the phenomena of the world can be deduced. In order to account for these phenomena, it is necessary also to admit another causality, that of freedom. The antithesis: there is no freedom, but everything in the world takes place entirely according to the laws of nature. The thesis of the fourth is: there exists an absolutely necessary being belonging to the world, either as a part or as a cause of it. The antithesis is a denial of this. The problems of the third division of the dialectic arises from an attempt to think of a whole which shall include both the known world and the mind that knows. This attempt, which Kant calls the ideal of pure reason, leads to proofs of the existence of God. As the dialectic proceeds, it becomes clear that Kant has another list to hand. He enumerates as the three great objects of metaphysical inquiry: God, freedom, and immortality. And in his discussion of the ideas of reason, he treats them principally as attempts to give definite and dogmatic answers to the problems suggested by these three topics. Immortality is the subject of what Kant calls the paralogisms of rational psychology. He argues that all attempts to prove the immortality of the soul by a priori arguments involve an argument of this kind. They begin by noting that death is always dissolution of some kind; that therefore what is not made up of parts and cannot be dissolved cannot die. Then they urge that the soul is not made up of parts and therefore cannot die. The fallacy in this argument is that it treats the unity of the self as though it were an object of knowledge. We can show that knowledge is only possible if the self has a unity other than that of a spatial whole, but we cannot therefore argue that it must be exactly like a spatial whole, in the sense that death in it can only be brought about by dissolution. But unlike a spatial whole, in that in it there is nothing to be dissolved, the real nature of the unity of self. Kant argues, cannot be known. All we can do is to reject a priori arguments, either for or against its immortality. Freedom is treated in the third antinomy of pure reason, and to that Kant devotes most attention. But others of the antinomies are concerned with the difficulties arising from the application of spatial and temporal determinations to reality as a whole. And to the category of necessity, Kant makes a distinction between the first two and the second two antinomies. It is the first two that express the inadequacy of temporal or spatial determination to reality as a whole. All such determination implies measurement, and measurement is always a relation of part to part. The antithesis of both antinomies. Express the inadequacy of any number to the expression of the nature of the whole. The thesis, the inadequacy of regarding reality as an aggregate or addition of any kind. 
Each is wrong in what it denies, and Kant's solution is that both thesis and antithesis are false because you cannot apply spatial or temporal determination to the world as a whole. In contrast to the solution of the other antinomies, is that both thesis and antithesis are true, and that is possible because they are concerned with different things. The third antinomy arises from the difficulty of applying the category of causation to the world as a whole. The assumption underlying the thesis is not, as is sometimes asserted, merely that the notion of infinity in itself implies a contradiction, but that a determinate result must have a determinate cause. If we think of what actually exists now as having been caused. By what has preceded it, we must think of that which has had a determinate result being itself determinate. It is the familiar argument for a first cause. In causation, we seem to be relating one event to another event, and are really only putting the question of origination further back. Yet, if we say that therefore we must suppose an absolute origination of change. A beginning of the series, we have to answer the question: How is it possible to think of the originating number of the series? For to think that something can arise from nothing is to contradict the principle of causation. Kant's solution to this difficulty is important, for it had great influence upon his ethical theory. The category of causation applies only to phenomena. If we think of things as phenomena, we must recognize that they are subject to the principle of causation. If we think of them as things in themselves, the category of causation does not apply to them, and their action may be free. The same action may, therefore, on its phenomenal side, be determined, and on its nominal side, as the action of a thing in itself, be free. This may seem to be dissolving one contradiction by propounding another, till we remember that in causation we do not explain the relation of cause to effect. The relation we discover is between one instance of cause and effect and another. Like causes have like effects. The principle applies then in so far as things are like one another. It applies to changes which are aggregates. Or complexes of simpler changes, which are like other changes. If and in so far as there are things which are more than aggregates of their elements, and are therefore unique, there are things to whose changes no law of cause and effect are adequate. The point may be illustrated by the way we think about character. If we think of a man's character as his characteristics. His being this or that kind of person, we must think of his action as so far determined. But that does not prevent us from thinking of his individuality as something more than any sum or combination of characteristics, as something essentially alive, which escapes all attempts to bind it by rules. It is the difference in Kant's words between man regarded. From the point of view of anthropology, and man regarded as a responsible moral being, we shall see in the next chapter 
that this distinction is the basis of Kant's moral theory. Here it must be noted that he does not claim that his solution of the third antinomy proves the fact of freedom, that he held no merely intellectual argument could prove. It only defends the possibility of freedom. The third division of the dialectic is an examination of the proofs of the existence of God. When we study Kant's account of them, we find that we are concerned, not as elsewhere in the dialectic, with a conflict springing from the nature of reason itself, but with the relation of thought and conduct. Kant distinguishes three proofs of the existence of God, the ontological, the cosmological, and the physico-theological. But he maintains that the last two really rest upon and imply the first. The first, the ontological proof, is the argument that the very conception of a perfect being implies existence. It is the only proof of moral importance inasmuch as it attempts to argue a priori that a being of perfect morality must exist. Kant's answer to it is that to argue that we could not conceive a perfect being unless we conceived that being's existence is to suppose that to conceive of a thing and to conceive of the same thing existing is to conceive of different things. Existence, he says, adds nothing to the concept of an object. Kant's objection to the ontological proof has been criticized, but the proof either assumes that God is a being independent of and separate from the rest of reality, and then, as Kant says, we may conceive God as existing, but our conception not being necessitated carries no necessity with it. If I conceive a hundred dollars to be in my pocket, he says, I conceive them to be there, but that does not mean the dollars are there. Or if we say that reality must be thought of as existing, the answer is, yes, but must reality necessarily be thought of as morally perfect? It is this last assumption which alone makes the ontological proof worth proving, for arguments about the existence or non-existence of God are mere quarrels about words except in so far as they are concerned with moral issues. But moral issues cannot be solved by a consideration of purely intellectual assumptions. The nature of the other two proofs of God's existence makes this clear. The second, the cosmological, is the argument that if anything exists, something must necessarily exist. Kant's answer is that this is sound so far as it goes, but it does not prove that what necessarily exists is a morally perfect being. The third, the physico-theological argument, is the familiar argument from design. Kant treats this argument with much greater respect than the other two, but insists that we must see how far it will carry us. If we are going to infer the nature of God from the nature of the world as we see it, we must do so honestly. But though we see design in the world, we do not see perfection, and on the basis of this argument, we cannot ignore the imperfection and want of harmony which is as patent as the harmony and design. Kant's analysis of these proofs seems negative. Its real purpose is to insist 
that religion cannot be dissociated from moral experience, that the knowledge of God, which is the concern of religion, is not God by intellectual speculation, but in the moral life. When he said that he had limited reason to make room for faith, he did not mean that men could not prove the existence of God, but might believe in it if they pleased. He meant that God is implied and known above all in moral action. His criticism of these classical proofs is thus the beginning of that revivified philosophy of religion, whose chief representatives have been Schreiermacher and Ritchell. End of chapter 5 Recorded by Kualada